This is a brief legal and content warning for this entire episode. Uh, in this episode, we are going to discuss homophobia, sexism, uh, sexual assault, police violence, family violence, emotional, physical, and other kinds of abuse. So we are going to discuss some of the consequences of things, the processes involved, getting help for these things. And this does include touching upon the legal specifics of it. However, this podcast is not a legal advice podcast. We are not your lawyers. We are not lawyers for your jurisdiction. We cannot offer legal advice. If you have any legal questions, you should ask a lawyer that is both qualified and specialized in your jurisdiction as they would have the proper um, resources to help you out with this sort of thing. And this includes getting counseling as most of us live in the United States, which is a hodgepodge of 50 states with a couple billion municipalities and conflicting laws, as well as precedents that are impossible to find unless you're a lawyer. So please do not rely on us for legal advice and seek appropriate help. Welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia. This is Nadia. And Ellie. And we have a guest, Claudia, here. Um, can you introduce yourself first off? Hi, everyone. Um, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm Claudia. I go by she, her, hers pronouns. So I'm here today partly on behalf of an organization I work for called the Rappahannock Council Against Sexual Assault in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And we offer free services to survivors of sexual violence and anyone in need. Um, my particular role is the community services specialist. So I do work with engagement, education, any kind of prevention work to help po folks in the society know about our CASA and know about the issues of sexual violence. Um, and then also, Claudia, if you want to give a content warning and a hotline, that would be great. So um, our CASA specific hotline is 540. 3711666. And we do offer bilingual services um, in Spanish and English. However, we are happy to accommodate all kinds of language speakers. Um, and then if you are not in Fredericksburg, you can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline called RAIN at 800-656-4673. And I would like to remind everyone that this is going to be a potentially sensitive discussion for some people. There might be activating themes that we talk about. And please feel free to pause, to leave. You don't have to listen to the whole thing. Um, just take care of yourselves um, because everybody has a different relationship with sexual violence. Thank you. Do you want to talk a little more in depth about like the services provided by the, sorry, RCASA? I'm so bad with acronyms. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> when I first started, I also said RCASA. And then the volunteer coordinator was like, Claudia, it's ARCASA. Ar so now <laughs> Yes. That's helpful. That yeah. The name actually used to be completely different when the organization was first founded. So it used to be the Fredericksburg Area Rape Crisis, and it stood for uh, FARC, which is a super awkward name. <laughs> so yeah, so they renamed it to the Rappahannock Council Against Sexual Assault. But yeah, we've been around since 1986. It was started by four women in Fredericksburg who saw a need for a sexual violence agency. And since then, we've grown. Um, we're the leading organization in Fredericksburg and planning District 16, um, which includes Stafford County, King George County, Caroline County, Spotsylvania County, and then Fredericksburg City, and providing free services to anyone in need. Um, and a few of our services include counseling, um, which currently we are offering counseling um, through uh, virtual means. We offer a one-hour anonymous support group for survivors on Tuesdays and Thursdays through Wayne's Help Room um, from 6 to 7 p.m. And I can also drop the link for that so that you all can share it. And we offer a 24-7 um, hour hotline. And like I mentioned earlier, this hotline um, can be accommodated to anyone's languages. Um, and then case management specifically helps survivors with 
care coordination, resources, and referrals. And we offer hospital accompaniment for survivors who seek out any kind of medical support. Um, currently, due to COVID-19, our advocates are providing support through the phone and legal accompaniment, which provides support and guidance to clients um, who do want to make a report. And we also do work with something called a sexual assault response team in Fredericksburg. So we work with law enforcement, lawyers, we help with medical appointments for survivors. Um, we really work with anyone in the organization who's involved in sexual violence. And then my job is um, the prevention side of sexual violence. So education in middle schools, high schools, and our college campuses in Fredericksburg. And we offer community engagement. So I offer a variety of workshops. Um, this month, they've been focused on Black History Month. So I offered a workshop called Quick Tips for Supporting a Survivor that focused specifically on Black African-American survivors, and we offer many others that you can look for on our website. And we include training for allied professionals. So anyone who wants to learn more about sexual violence advocacy or prevention can come to these workshops just for further education. Um, and we try to do collaborations with really everyone in the area, including other nonprofits, uh, private and public organizations, and universities. And we also have a pretty strong social media engagement, which I can um, put in the chat and you guys can share it when you put the podcast up so people can look for our Costa socials. Um, so yeah, we do a lot. Um, it's amazing because our organization isn't very large. Um, we have about 10 or so people, um, whether they're full-time, part-time, or an intern, um, but we do so much. And it's really just a few people who really um, are so committed and passionate about sexual violence that keep this organization running. And, you know, we're going through a lot of changes right now. Um, we're hiring more people. So there's always new innovation um, and ways to just access more people in our community. That's really what my focus is, is trying to access people in our community. We've kind of... Um, been neglecting and people just that need um they need sexual violence services but they haven't really had them um, so that's my particular passion within the organization yeah that's wow. an incredible amount of um <laughs> amount of work um for a small organization i'm yeah. really excited in particular to hear that uh, you've done programming for middle schools um because i can't imagine that happening um at the, when I was in middle school, like so many people say that like, oh, kids are too young to be taught this stuff, but they're not, unfortunately, they're not too young to experience it. So um, I'm, I'm really glad yeah. that's happening. And being sexually assaulted, especially if you're going, like requires a whole suite of help to get. And if you've never been involved with the legal system or medical system, which you both have to interact with both to, or the mental health care systems, in this country, which are stupidly divorced from each other, um, it's hard to get into because um, if you've been insulted, you're going to need to get a full medical checkup. You're going to need, and a lot of this is very invasive, and you need to basically what's colloquially called a rape kit, which will, which is used for collecting evidence. You will also need to be checked for SEDs. You will need to be checked for trauma. You will need follow-up care. And you will also, if you cho so choose, need to make a report to the police, which is its own set of invasive stuff with its own really messy uh, history with you know discrimination, anti-women violence, anti-black violence. Like I said, if you've never interacted with any of these systems before, going to any one of them alone would be intimidating, but to have to suddenly engage with them all after an extremely, probably extremely traumatic event, it's like, what do you do? And that also comes with the whole baggage of self-doubt where you're like, was I even sexually assaulted? Did I? Didn't I? But I love them. And of course, the whole personal interrelational power dynamics that comes with this whole situation with the people around you, your community, who was involved and Jesus Christ, I'm getting exhausted just thinking about all the, ah. Yeah, there are so many like complicated moving pieces to this line of work. Um, even just the laws themselves aren't always very clear cut, especially 
for advocates who are working with young people under the age of 18, it can get very complicated um, because then you have mandatory reporters involved. Um, but yeah, there's really so much more to it than you go through this trauma, you go to the hospital, you report it. It's, it's just not that simple. And it's just why a lot of people really need to learn about this and learn what their resources are and what the process is like. And for bonus points, it's fragmented across all the municipalities and all the states of the United States. So there is no unified system. You cannot talk to an advocate in one state to get help for another one. And that's not even going to get involved with the whole criminal and civil court process that comes after all this initial trauma. So uh, when I hear, you know, bros on the internet be like, yeah, well, why didn't you just report it? Or why didn't you talk to the police? Or why didn't you do this or that? And it's like, it's like, fuck you, who cares? Like, exactly what victim blaming is or victim shaming so putting the responsibility on the survivor for both the trauma that they went through um, but also for the following steps of finding healing and um, possibly making a report if they want to not making a report if they don't feel comfortable um, but so many people are more likely to look at the survivor almost as at fault even though we all know in this that it's never the fault of the survivor, it's always the fault of the perpetrator, but that just doesn't get considered because of this culture we have of rape, um, or rape culture you might have heard of. Um, but thank you for sharing, Ellie. Um, you seem to know a lot about this too. <laughs> Just, just a little. Um, for those who are not keeping up with my personal background, I'm an ex-attorney. I had to interact with some of this. I'm also a trans woman, so I attended a lot of support groups. So I had to. I heard a lot of people's stories, unfortunately. And in Texas, if you're trans it, and a woman and sexually assaulted, it's it's messy to say the least. Yes, um, I appreciate your sharing that. Yeah, it's. Bring, you're bringing up really great points about how when you're marginalized, the process is even further complicated. Um, and not only the process itself and the moving pieces, but also just the mental health aspects of it and not feeling like you have support in your communities. Um, and that's something I really wanted to talk about with being queer. You know, when you're queer and you're assaulted, there's this extra layer of do I want to report it because the queer community is already so small, you'll risk literally being ostracized from that group, especially if it's a partner, another partner or somebody within that one group. But that's not really a conversation that queer people have because we don't often think of ourselves as being capable of survivorship. Um, because it's such a movement for the heterosexual, cisgender white woman. Um, and it's, there's just no room for anybody who falls outside of those boxes. Yeah, and you know, God help you if you don't speak English or Spanish, just everyone considers those to be the, the big accessible languages in this country. But if, if you don't have access to one of those languages, fluently, then it's going to be even harder to get help on that. Going back to the queer community issue, it's like we always joke about how incestuous and small the lesbian community is in any given city, even large cities. Imagine reporting somebody who's been a lover and been loved by many of your friends who has suddenly reported bisexual assault that basically puts you on trial with them as well as your relationships with everyone else on notice. And doubly so if you are a gay man in a gay man's group and of course then there's and if you want to spice it all up throw in that wonderful spice of being transgender and yeah i think in addition to the the issue of like small community ties there's also just this concept of what someone who commits sexual assault looks like um and what their gender is and then there's this whole issue of believability like if the person who abused or assaulted me isn't this stereotypical large cisgender male if they're somebody who people don't associate with violence like is anyone going to believe me anyway yeah absolutely that's a major criticism i have with a lot of sexual assault agencies is that they don't really consider a that um men or basically non-cisgender women can be survivors, but then they also don't consider that even other people than cisgender men can be perpetrators. 
and constantly only portraying it in those ways is really problematic for everybody mm-hmm. involved. And yes, I do think that we should be engaging men, of course, and learning about healthy relationships and learning about consent and learning to treat women, you know, with respect. We should because statistically, yes, women are more likely to experience sexual violence than men. Um, but also you're making men feel like they can't express their assault or their violence in general. Um, and it's also very emasculating for men who have experienced sexual violence. Um, so I think that it needs to be approached from both ends and not just from one. And then, of course, it's more complicated if you're a man of color as well than if you're a white man. Do you want to speak to um, how resource centers should consider the intersections of one's identity when determining, like, how to help someone or support someone? Yeah, definitely. So I'm a major proponent proponent of intersectionality. Um, and for those listening who aren't sure of what it is, it was a term coined by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a lawyer and an activist um, and a Black woman. And she originally coined this term because she saw that Black women were being overlooked when discussing discrimination compared to white women and then black men. Um, And also when the media was talking and the news in general were talking about people who experienced police brutality, black women, again, were really left out of that equation. So she coined this term and it basically explains how people's various identities intersect and overlap to create modes of oppression or modes of privilege. Um, and how that experience might look systemically, institutionally, uh, culturally. So I try to carry that both in my personal and professional life. And I think we often, if we do think of marginalized people, we often really only look at them from one lens. So um, you are queer, or you are a woman, or you are a person of color, or you are disabled, but not how all of those identities can come together. And there are people who encompass all of those identities at one time. Um, And you can't just turn them off and you can't can't turn them on, Um, but you're constantly harnessing all of them when you walk through the world. And they might affect you in different ways. They might affect you at different times, um, but they always will. And I think that um, with being a person of color or even Arab more specifically, Um, Arab people, for one, it's, like, really complicated in our country of are we white or are we people of color? Because according to the U.S. Census of 2020, Arab people are white. Um, But according to many white people, you know, people of Western European descent, they don't consider us white and they don't treat us as white. No matter how, you know, light-skinned or dark-skinned you are, I feel like that's true. And I'm a very light-skinned Lebanese person, and I still have experienced so much just bigotry from people in my own communities, whether that was school or my club, especially growing up in Virginia specifically, which is, you know, a southern state. There's just been a lot of um, Islamophobia and xenophobia. Um, But Arab people don't, you know, they don't really talk about sexual violence on top of not really receiving resources because, again, we're not considered people of color, so we're often excluded from education and resources that we should be getting. I think that it's particularly taboo, not only the sexual violence aspect, but just the sex aspect is still very taboo in Arab cultures. Um, mental health conditions are still very taboo in Arab culture, um, especially, I think, PTSD, depression. Like, it's just not considered real almost for people to experience. And as you all know, um, and we mentioned earlier, many people who have been um, victims of sexual violence do also experience mental health conditions as well, um, especially after the fact. There's just a lot of considerations to be made that really aren't being made. And again, it's complicated if you have more than one of those identities. And I think also Arab men in particular, like a lot of men of color, are kind of looked at as brutal and violent. Um, And the only representation that we see 
are uh, terrorists um, in the news, and that's really it. We don't see anything else, and that's probably the first thing that a lot of people think of. And Arab women are thought of as docile, and they're not free. They're not. They don't have the choice to do whatever they want. Um, they have to like be saved, quote saved by Western like white women. Um, and this is especially, I think, true for Muslim Arab women. But that's, I guess, a little more focused on Arab people in, in particular. Um, and I will say that I don't really see them being included in any kind of circles, you know, relationship violence, sexual violence. And I've worked in this field um, about four years now. And I've worked at, you know, many different circles. And really all of them just didn't consciously think about our community as well. And of course, it's an issue to other people of color too, you know, Black, Indigenous people, Asian people in general, um, East Asian people, and of course, you know, any really anyone else who falls under that umbrella. But yeah, I there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack here. I know I've been talking a lot, um, and I really do want to hear your thoughts as well about this, since you all are queer and Arab too. <laughs> No, this is great. Um, we this is talking a lot is what we do on this podcast. I'm curious to hear. Um, have have you kind of made any attempts to uh, reach out to like, for instance, the Arab community in Virginia um, about like destigmatizing um, sexual education and um, sexual assaults education or resources and how. It's, How's that been going? So this has been something especially I've been doing among my particular circle, um, my social circle. So I do have friends at my university um, who are Arab, who are more specifically Lebanese, um, and some of them are queer as well. And we, I don't want to, of course, like name anybody for privacy, but I want to say like half of us have all experienced sexual violence in some way. Um, so it is a conversation that I'm having a lot in my personal life. I would definitely really love to incorporate it more into my work at Arcasa specifically. And there's unfortunately a lot, there's not really a huge Arab population in Fredericksburg. Um, I would say there is more of one where I came from in Tidewater, Virginia, specifically in Norfolk, Virginia. There were a decent number of Lebanese people in particular. But it's really hard to have these conversations unless, A, they're your age, um, so they're young people. And I think this sounds problematic, but maybe, like, they're almost been a little more westernized. Um, so, like, they're a little more comfortable with, assimil- like, they've been assimilated almost. Because I find that older generations um, in particular, so, like, my parents and my grandparents, they're even less likely to talk about this as people like our age um, who have been around other or been exposed to other populations and other ideas and other mindsets and cultures. Um, but I would really love to do more of that, particularly at our CASA. And when I so when I first started my so last year when I first started interning and not just volunteering at organizations. I did intern at a place called One Love Foundation, um, and they work more on the relationship abuse side than the sexual violence side. So it's a little different. Also, our organization has been a lot more intentional lately about being inclusive, and I have been talking with them, particularly my previous supervisor, um, even today, because I'm still volunteering there, um, about how Arab people and um, Middle Eastern people However, people like to identify themselves to experience abuse. And, you know, I'm pretty open about my story of abuse, both within my family and um, outside of my family, among friends. Um, and I think, I think it, you know, it is surprising because, again, it's so taboo. Um, but I can't really not talk about it at this point. It's just like one of those things that's a part of me. Um, but I have been pretty open with that organization. Um, with ARCASA specifically, I've since I just started the position January 4th, I'm very new to it. I'm hoping to be working more with the LGBT community, um, people with disabilities, people of color, um, Arab people. So it's not my only focus. And I think that's 
hugely impacted by the fact that I do have other identities other than being Lebanese. And I know all of us here probably have more than just being Arab and being queer in some capacity. So it's really hard and sometimes can feel overwhelming to want to focus on all of these different groups when you can't like be a superhero and you can't take on everything. Um, and you will find that a lot. And I'm sure Ellie saw that a lot, um, but especially in any kind of like advocacy circles, a lot of the people are like helpers and they just want to help everyone. And, you know, burnout is definitely an issue with this field. So finding the spoons here and there and finding the people that you can connect with about it, even if I think, you know, it is just friends and in your social circle is a really powerful way to start mobilizing and galvanizing um, any kind of substantial work. And on a more personal note and less of a professional note, I think that lately I've, because of the abuse I experienced in my family, specifically my mom, I and I have experienced abuse with my dad too, I just felt like so detached almost and like disconnected from other Arab people in my family because it really did disconnect me from a lot of them, unfortunately. And I had to find that sense of Arabness and that sense of identity elsewhere, not necessarily within my family. And, you know, even bringing it and exposing it to other people, like my friends who are an Arab and my partner who is not Arab. Yeah, so I think that's been a big impact in how and why I have been doing this work very slowly and incorporating Arab community into my work is my personal relationship with it. How many people have had to explain to their white partner that they can't t talk to their parents about certain things because suddenly all their cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents will know all their business and it'll be filtered through the person through they told them. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's not just a conversation you can really have with your parents or with anyone else in the family. I've never like explicitly, I never like came out about it. It, it wasn't like ever, you know, I shared like, on social media, like this person did this and this and this to me. It was more little things like here and there of, you know, I didn't feel like I was being treated well by this person or I feel like I need a break from this person. And um, it was never detailed in what happened. Um, because I knew that there would just be so much backlash and disbelief, um, you know, and the people I did try and talk about it with, it just wasn't really taken to very well. You know, even my own sister, it was not really taken to well, and she's our age, you know, younger and um, more exposed to, I think, dynamics of relationships and whether those are healthy and unhealthy kind of conscientiously thinking about that so it has been very you know difficult obviously but also it's just a reality of being an Arab person it's like you just you can't choose but you can find ways to make peace with it and find ways to still be proud of your heritage and sort of move forward and pick up what you want to pick up I think all of us as, you know, queer Arab folks are always, are have always been subject to the WhatsApp family chat hot takes. It's also like uh, what you were talking about earlier with um, difficulties of reporting things in queer communities because of small tight-knit circles that talk a lot. I think that's the same in Arab communities or any just small cultural communities. Um, like I grew up, you were talking about like small Lebanese communities in Virginia. I grew up in North Carolina um, around Raleigh, okay. similar deal. Yeah, um, and, and I, I think just any any small subculture, it's just so much harder to start talking about something that's taboo because it doesn't stop. You can't talk about things with one person. Yes. Exactly. Um, I'm yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. And I think it's also complicated by geographical location. Like I know you're from North Carolina, like you mentioned, and being queer is less accepted. I know at least where I'm from. I did not come out in high school. You know, I never felt safe doing that. And I remember I was actually outed by two girls on my dance 
team in eighth grade, um, even though like I never explicitly said I was queer or gay or anything. Um, it was literally just a joke about being so done with men, which like straight women could totally feel that way too, I think. But yeah, it was just was not like a space where you could be yourself, whether it was being Arab or being queer. And Fredericksburg, you know, it's also a small town. You go to the farmer's market and you pretty much see like at least five people there that you know. So it is a somewhat similar environment, but the difference is that you have the university and the university itself has a huge career population where I am. And that was really what gave me the space to finally like say to myself, yeah, I'm queer, even though I knew it probably since I was like seven or something. But yeah, that that change of scenery and being around more young people um, and being exposed to other cultures and identities is what really helped me finally come to terms with it. But yeah, then again, you're also dealing with the fact that no matter where you go, there's still going to be that very small circle, you know, whether it is in a southern area that's less progressive or you're in a northern area or you're in California where it is more progressive, it's still going to be like that. So changing it like from within and having these conversations internally um, is very necessary um, to improving, I think. Um, this issue. And I think to go specifically back to certain taboos in um, Arab, or even let's say like specifically Lebanese American communities, not exclusively, but I, I can speak from that perspective. I think like a lot of the stigma not just comes from um, talking about sex, but also about talking about like acknowledging PTSD is a thing. Because if we st- if we started to acknowledge that that's a real Thing, whether it's from sexual assault or like war violence or from familial abuse um, mm-hmm. like some things are so normalized that everybody would have to be acknowledging that they have trauma responses which isn't false but people aren't mm-hmm. ready to talk about how widespread that is because that that would just affect so many people if it came to the surface that's very true and I'm even thinking um, how I don't exactly know how old you all are but I'm 23 so I was around three-ish years old when 9-11 happened. So we, I think at least most of us grew up post 9-11 and our parents grew up pre 9-11, um, whether that was coming here to the country before it happened or they were born in this country and their grandparents came here or their parents came here. Um, there's also just a very different relationship, I think with this country in particular, the United States, and being Arab after that time. And there's just a lot of discomfort, I think, around Arabness since then. Um, And also, you know, even within Arab families, I think some kinds of relationship abuse are just really normalized. And I have a, a very specific example. So I was talking with one of my friends who um, is North African, so she's Sudanese, and she and I were talking about how both of our moms pinch each other and um, I never realized that the pinching thing like mom's pinching is an Arab thing I just thought it was my mom Um, but apparently it is something a lot of Arab kids experience with their moms like pinching you um, when they get mad and it doesn't even like sound very serious but you know it, 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 it can be really difficult when you're a child and your mom like is literally threatening you with pinching you at like five years old. So that's an example of how even within Arab culture, like there's just this normalization. And then you grow up and you like internalize that and you have this mental health, you have an experience with mental health, whether it's anxiety or depression or PTSD or something else completely. Um, But then you can't really talk about it because of that stigma. And I was somebody who experienced Um, depression in particular pretty much since like eighth grade I dealt with it and I was not allowed to get help you know my parents did not allow me to go to counseling until my junior year so I was like three four years later at that point and it was only because I was like begging them and begging them and it got so serious like they didn't have a choice um, but before that, it was like, what's depression? Like, you're not experiencing depression. So, yeah, it's, I don't, you know, I don't know how it's changing now. Like, I don't know if it's really changing a lot because, like I said, I think I have been a little bit 
disconnected from my family. But um, I hope, I really hope that our generation will help make it a little bit more acceptable um, to have mental health conditions and talk about the unhealthy dynamics of um, your relationship. So I am very on board with that depression stuff myself. Uh, was diagnosed really early. Thankfully, my parents were pretty cool about it. But there is kind of a stigma against it. Like, I have heard friends who have gotten treatment for depression, like they couldn't talk about their parents because they're like, oh, mental health, psychiatry, isn't that like a Jewish thing? And oh it's like, God. no. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a, it's like, it's an uncomfortable discussion to have, especially when you have to confront some of like the racist shit that comes along with like your culture and your heritage. And, and just saying that sentence was extremely uncomfortable. So there we go. Yeah, um, I haven't heard that particular, like, the anti-Semitic version of that. Uh, but I, I definitely have, like, heard this idea, like, oh, like, therapy is for white people. Like, saying you have depression is for, like, white ladies. And it, it's, it's really double-edged, because on one hand, like, we want to, you know, normalize the idea that getting therapy is valid and mental health problems are valid in our communities. But we also have to address the fact that um, the, the institution of clinical psychology has been a very white dominated one and hasn't been a very culturally inclusive one and isn't really made to address the needs of all people. But also depression is a real thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a very um, good point that there's so few therapists out there that probably understand like Arab culture and like those family dynamics. Um, there's probably really few therapists who are actually Arab, you know, in this country. So I don't, you know, I don't know if organizations are going to start taking us into account and unless we as Arab people also talk about this. I'm very fascinated by kind of internal conversations and like internal self-awareness. So I think a lot of movements begin with conversations within that particular culture um, and being able to like have that self-reckoning. I'm sorry that you experienced that, Ellie. You know, you also experienced depression. It's really hard and a lot, you just don't get it. You just don't get it until you go through it. Okay, so I got, I got two two brief stories about this that are not going to be brief in reality. But so um, the therapist I've been seeing for like the last four years um, just retired, and I am super dreading having to find another one because she's Turkish. She immigrated here young, and whether like let's skip the whole our Turk. Turkish people, Arabic debate, that's like a whole side issue, but she knew the family dynamics. She knew the culture. Like I didn't have to spend a session and my hourly fee explaining to her all this dynamic stuff. It's like, oh yeah, I get it. And blah, blah, blah. And we could actually get to discussing the issue. That was kind of nice. And now I'm going to have to find a new counselor who's probably a white person who I'm going to have to sit down and educate for 10 sessions out of the 20 my insurance allows. But yeah, but but that also goes along with like other issues, not just including sexual assault, like my personal experience. I'm trans. To get tr help, treatment in this country um, for the longest time, if you didn't go to a consent clinic and consent clinics weren't always a thing and what consent clinics are, are side conversation. To get therapy, to get surgery, to get hormones, to get treatment, to you know keep up the anti-depression um, prescription that I need to basically function as a person i have to constantly see a therapist at least every six months so i have to be constantly involved in this mental health care system so finding that initial one finding one with a person with enough cultural sensitivity or at least enough wherewithal to like just roll with what i said and not question it sometimes was a pretty hard thing to do even finding somebody who is just sensitive enough in those issues is a hard thing to find. And yes, this whole conversation has a lot to unpack, but I'm going to stop it here. Otherwise, we're going to just be talking about my <laughs> bullshit all day. No, I, I appreciate your opening up because like these conversations and sharing your experiences and connecting with others through those experiences is how change begins. And I think another thing with Arab culture is I feel like we're taught not to talk about ourselves and not to talk about any kind of woes we have and the ways we struggle because it's almost like selfish and self-centered. So even, you know, even I am like, 
I'm sitting here and I'm talking about myself. This is so uncomfortable. I don't know if I like this. Um, but we have to just put that aside and just throw it out, you know? I'm yeah. culturally, like, culturally, you're saying you're not, women are not supposed to be the center of attention. It's like, which teaches you, hey, I'm in the middle of this podcast and I'm the center of the attention and, I'm, and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true. There's also those gender roles as well. I, I, this is not on topic at all, but I'm taking, so I'm from school and I'm taking a class on language and gender. And I've been learning about how women kind of have our own language. So like we hedge a lot. We say, um, oh, I know just, we're more likely to have our conversations end with inflection in our voice. So we're, it's almost like we're asking a question, even if we're making a statement. And I do that all the time. Um, I'm trying not to do it, but it's like you've been taught these things since a young age and you just see other women do this as well. So you're going to like mimic it. See the past 10 minutes of this entire conversation. You'll see, yeah. question mark. See, here's I have a I have a I have a thing I have a particular thing about these things. Um, so what you're saying, like, of course, it's objectively true. I have an issue with sometimes the like career coaching that tries to get women to change their language as if that's their responsibility. Like, no one will take you seriously unless you take out the justs from your email. Maybe that's practical advice. Maybe it's not. But no one is asking whether like men don't apologize enough. Because I think a lot of men should be apologizing more and they should be hedging a lot more because like sometimes they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. so true. They should question themselves yeah. <laughs> also and like question what they're about to say too sometimes. Uh, dear coworker who speaks to me way too much with a, with way too much authority that they don't have, question yourself a little more, sound a little more unsure. Could you please? <laughs> okay, God. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing about like not just about the organization, but um, kind of like what drew you to this work. It's a really gradual process coming to terms with like, not just what happened, but even getting to the place where you can identify what happened, especially if it was like, um, during childhood. Because um, a lot of times like, that's not even identifiable to children right away. So yeah, that's, you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I didn't even know what emotional abuse was and that it was a thing that existed until um, my teacher, Miss Hobbs, my English teacher, told me about it and said, yeah, I think you're being emotionally abused by your parents. And I was like, what? That's what it is? What? <laughs> Thanks, Miss Hobbs. Yeah, I still sometimes struggle to identify emotional abuse as it's happening. Yeah. It's yeah. tough. Yeah, yeah. And it's not as easy to look at emotional abuse, there aren't like physical injuries, you know, like when you're being physically abused by someone, like you can't deny like, oh yeah, that person didn't punch you, like if you have a bruise on your face. But with emotional abuse, it's often per perpetrated by somebody who's very charming, um, who, you know, is very, very nice and fun and bubbly in front of some people, but then as soon as the door is shut, they're a completely different person. Um, and that was, you know, very much my experience, and it's a lot of people's experience, too. So, yeah, it's harder for people to identify it, and it's also, like, they're less, like, other people are less likely to believe you when you say that you have been emotionally abused. Yeah, and even some physical abuse as a child is so normalized, like spanking. Yes. Um, yeah. And it's still accepted. Yeah, I think a lot of this just shows that we can't, like, yes, we need to address individual cases, but there's also just so much we need to address on a cultural level. Yeah. Absolutely. And again, it's like uncomfortable. You want to like shy away from it. It can bring up a lot of feelings in somebody that they don't know they have. Um, so even if you don't think you've been abused, sometimes just caring about these dynamics of somebody else who's experienced them can bring up thoughts and realizations that you never would have expected. Um, and I see that a lot with survivors, you know, in my personal life, 
with friends because I am very open about these conversations. And, you know, when I do talk about them, sometimes it makes them realize something that they just didn't know. But, you know, it's, that's why you have to have this conversation and kind of lean into that discomfort and just embrace the discomfort. And then you can actually start to find healing from it and help others um, move forward with your life. Do you want to talk about like if someone I mean from your perspective working with this organization um, do you have anything to say about like if someone close to you has experienced sexual assault are there ways that one should offer support like even if they're not in a professional role but Mm -hmm. sorry if there's any advice that you have on that yeah um definitely you don't have to be in any kind of social services profession to be able to help a survivor. So I think the first the first piece of advice is to listen to the survivor non-judgmentally um, and recognize that sexual violence is always the fault of the perpetrator and never of the survivor. And I could just say that 10 times over every day <laughs> because it somehow gets so lost in these conversations. So not making value judgments on the survivor's behavior. So not saying like, oh, you should have done this. You should have told someone. You should have broken up with her. You should have dressed differently. Avoid any kind of why questions. So, you know, why didn't you tell this person to stop? Why didn't you call the police? Um, Because that can make the survivor feel like it was their fault. Like they should should have done something different. Like they could have avoided it. Um, But in the first place, the perpetrator should never have committed that act of violence at all. And just remind them over and over again that they didn't deserve it, no matter what. Um, Nobody deserves to be hurt. Nobody chooses to be traumatized. And focus on validating their feelings. So sometimes there can be like a moment of shock and denial right after um, a trauma happens. So they might, their reaction might not be what you would think it is. They might not do what you would think they'd want to do. Um, but if they want to just like go to a movie and act like it didn't happen for an hour, then just respect that. Even if it doesn't feel natural to you, acknowledging that whatever they're feeling is natural and using phrases like, you know, it must be very hard when this person talks to you like that. Um, What I'm hearing is you don't feel like you have time to take care of yourself because you're putting so much time towards taking care of your family. Sounds like you feel like you're being neglected. So almost like mirroring the language of the survivor is is really powerful and such a small, really easy thing to do. And of course, you know, the phrases of validation, they don't make the survivor's feelings go away. All they really do is just acknowledge that they exist and that they're okay to exist. So just keeping the focus on listening and mirroring and not fixing. Um, because a lot of survivors aren't even in that moment, a lot of survivors aren't necessarily thinking about the next step. Um, they're just thinking like, that just happened, what? Because of that initial shock factor. And this is a really important one, letting the survivor make their own choice about what they want to do after experiencing the violence. So don't push them to do something they might not feel ready for. Instead, offer resources. So in Fredericksburg, we have this organization, ARCASA. And if you're in Fredericksburg, you could say, you know, there's this organization that exists, it helps sexual assault survivors, and um, they can offer you all kinds of support if you want it. And offer support in ways, of course, that also are respecting your own boundaries and your own needs. So if you don't feel comfortable going to a police station because you don't feel comfortable or safe around the police, that's perfectly valid. Um, Instead, offering to find another trusted friend or family member to go to the police with them. Um, But there is something called secondary trauma or vicarious trauma. Um, Basically, when a survivor goes through trauma and their friend or family member or anyone in their circle learns about it and is there to help them 
that can actually be traumatizing to the support system as well. So making sure that you're seeking help for yourself, um, you're talking to others um, who you can trust about it. Um, if you have a counselor, if you can afford a counselor, talking to a counselor about it, um, because you can't really help somebody if you're not taking care of yourself. And this is a big one as well, but not confronting the perpetrator. And this is especially true of an abusive relationship. So confronting the abuser can be really dangerous. So the first six weeks after a survivor leaves any kind of abusive relationship are the most dangerous time for a survivor. And it's when they're most likely to um, be killed by their abusive spouse. Um, and also, it can be re-traumatizing psychologically to see your perpetrator, and that abuser might try to take the situation, you know, where you confront them to isolate you from other people and specifically make you feel like they can only go to the perpetrator, like they don't have anybody else. And so there's all kinds of risks with going to the perpetrator at all, but instead helping the survivor create some kind of a safety plan. Um, and a safety plan is just, um, it, it kind of sounds like what it is, so it's a plan for survivors to leave an abusive situation in a safe, kind of calculated way. Um, it's often planned ahead of time, and it can look like the survivor packing a bag um, and hiding it in case they ever get the opportunity to leave or they decide they want to. Um, it could look like having a note written down of people's numbers that they feel safe going to if they decide to leave. But yeah, a safety plan is always a really important step in leaving if they do want to leave. Um, and of course, mirroring whatever language the survivor uses to describe their violence. So I've been using a term sexual violence throughout this um, discussion. And it's because sexual violence is a more inclusive term than saying like rape or sexual abuse or sexual assault um, because any there are so many different forms of sexual violence and when you only use like sexual assault you're not acknowledging the many different experiences a survivor can have um, of sexual violence and there are survivors who've experienced multiple types of sexual violence um, so even though I've been using that term if a survivor is using a term like sexual assault and maybe it's not the correct the correct term, and that's the term that feels affirming to them, um, and that's the term that kind of makes sense to them and their experience, then giving the space and the permission to them to describe their experience that way is really powerful, um, especially if, you know, when they haven't had any choice in the past, when they had this choice stripped of them, um, and moving forward, it's really the only time where they can regain that power and find healing. Um, and I could go on and on, uh, but those are just a few tips I would give to people who want to support someone in their life. Yeah, can I ask just a quick, or I don't know, maybe this is actually probably not quick at all, um, a follow-up question to that about um, supporting friends. Uh, what would Do you have recommendations of how to approach um, the situation where someone you know uh, you suspect they're in an abusive relationship, but they're not necessarily willing to admit it, which can be, I don't know, very sticky territory because you all don't always have enough information to know for sure that it's abusive because often people mask abuse in their relationships before they're willing to admit that. Um, but if you're seeing red flags, how to approach that situation? That's a very good question. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you understand that it might make survivors sort of shut down and feel like they can't talk about it. So it is really sensitive how you approach the conversation, just expressing genuine concern, but without making any kind of like accusation um, about the relationship. So you can make it more general. Um, so it's just saying like, I noticed that you've been struggling lately, um, you've been off, is there any way I can support you? You know, is there anything that I can do with your friend to make you feel better? Please know, like, you can talk to me about anything. Instead of explicitly asking about that relationship, 
Um, and it also makes them feel like they can come to you about it. And all you really did is like crack the door and then they can push it open the rest of the way if they want to. You have explicitly talked about it in some way. And Mr. Fiverr has shared that they don't feel like they want to leave the relationship, like they're not ready to, they don't feel safe to. Um, then just letting them know that you're there for them whenever they do decide to and that you'll support them either way. And I know it's very, very difficult to have a relationship with somebody, a friendship or family relationship who's in an abusive one with somebody else and they don't want to leave. And I mentioned earlier vicarious trauma. So it can be traumatic to see someone you know in a relationship. Um, but it does, on average, it takes about seven times to leave an abusive relationship successfully. Really hard, um, not only, you know, emotionally and the survivor being able to acknowledge them to themselves that they're in one, but also like literally leaving can be very difficult, um, especially when they have like zero power, zero control, zero independence and they're completely reliant on their abuser. Um, and I definitely see this a lot um, between parents and children. Um, and again, it's, it's something that I think is left out a little bit. You know, we talk more about romantic relationships, but less about how friendships can be abusive or parent-children relationships can be abusive. Yeah, I think that's the, uh, those are two pieces of advice. And if they kind of shut down about it, and they don't respond, they don't look like they feel comfortable, as hard as it is, then maybe dropping it. Because again, you don't want them to not feel like they can go to you ever. Um, and if they feel pressured, they might be less likely to feel like they even have a choice in the conversation, and they might feel like they're being judged. And that's the last thing a survivor needs, is to feel judged for staying when there's like, a million reasons why survivors do stay in abusive relationships. And maybe, I guess, if they are open to the idea that it's abusive, they acknowledge it, they specify they might want to leave one day, um, then bringing up the, uh, the safety plan I mentioned earlier, you know, that there are options um, like safety planning, going to resources in the area, um, you know, it's not just they're going to leave and that's that, and they don't really have anywhere to go to, um, but that there are places, um, there are people who they can go to um, right after it happens. Yeah, I don't know if that helped. I hope so, but I know it's difficult and complicated. Yeah, I don't think there's a short, quite easy answer, but that was yeah. um, really helpful and thorough. Uh, where can people get in contact either with you or with uh, Rikasa. Did I say that right, Rikasa? So um, if you want to give us a call just on our regular phone, learn more about our services, um, you can call us at 540-371-6771. Um, but if it, it's a crisis situation or you really feel like you need to talk to someone, about a violence that you experienced or someone else experienced, you can call our hotline at 540-371-1666. And we also have an email that's just a general office email, um, info at rcasa.org, and a website which you can find on www.rcasa.org. And we do have various social media accounts. Um, so on Instagram, I'm pulling it up right now. Okay, so on Instagram, it's rcasa1986, and rcasa is all lowercase. Um, on Twitter, it's rcasa, all uppercase, um, and then underscore VA, which is also uppercase, and Facebook, uppercase rcasa, and then Rappahannock Council Against Sexual Assault. So those are the three apps that we are most present on. Um, we do have a YouTube where we put our public service announcement, which is just Trafficking Council Against Sexual Assault. I, I think if you're looking for um, any kind of crisis services, though, to call our CASA hotline. Um, if you're not in our area, 
you know, especially fall outside the planning district 16, Santa call rain. Um, and rain is the national sexual violence hotline and it's eight zero zero six five six four six seven three and they will connect you with a local sexual violence agency in your particular area. Thank you so much for coming on and um, talking about something so important. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's always good to have another Lebanese woman on with us. So oh, <laughs> it's really, I don't know. It's so surreal hearing this because I've been listening to the podcast for two years now. Oh. And yeah, and it was always like in the back of my mind, wouldn't it be so cool to like talk with them and do an episode? <laughs> But I didn't really have, like, yeah, yeah, it was, I don't know. It's kind of nerdy, but um, I didn't have, like, a reason to go on. Um, you know, I couldn't really think of anything. And then I started this job last month, and I figured this is the conversation that really needs to be had. Yes. Um, yeah. Thank you for I the work for- you do. Yeah, of course. Um, thank you all for your work. It's, I think this is just so cool, and... Yeah, keep doing it.